Welcome and thank you for standing by. At this time, all participants are in listen-only mode. After the presentation, we will conduct the question and answer session. To ask a question, please press star and then number one. This call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this point. Now I will turn the meeting over to your host, Michael Locker. Please begin. Great. Thank you very much. And good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to those around the world. And thank you for joining today's press call. I am Michael Loco, the Communications Director here at the World Resources Institute. Uh, for those who are less familiar with us, WRI is a global research organization working at the nexus of the environment, human development, and the economy. We have over 700 staff working in eight offices and projects and partnerships bearing, spanning 50 countries around the world. Um, today, we are hosting this call with leading urban experts and energy experts to discuss issues related to shifting to clean energy and clean and renewable energy in cities in the global south. The conversation comes as WRI prepares to release a new working paper called Powering Cities in the Global South, How Energy Access for All Benefits the Economy and the Environment. This paper is the next in the series of analysis that we are releasing as part of our flagship World Resources Report towards a more equal city. Um, note that the contents of this call and the paper itself are under embargo until uh, September 7th at 12.01 Eastern Time, which is 4.01 GMT. So basically one minute after midnight tonight, um, all the contents of this call are under embargo, and we appreciate the reporters on the call respecting the embargo time. Um, we are very glad to be joined by several world-recognized experts today on this call. Um, we will be hear briefly from them, and then will be followed by a Q&A session with the reporters on the call. Um, I will just very briefly introduce our speakers. Uh, we will first hear from Michael Westfall, who is a senior associate at the WI Ross Center for Sustainable Cities and the Sustainable Finance Center here at WI, and he is the lead author of the paper. We will then, then hear from Ajay Mather. Ajay is the Director General of Terry, the Energy and Resources Institute. He is based in Delhi. We will then hear from Bapasha Bara, who is a professor and research chair in the women's in the global women's issues president of the Canadian Association for the Study of International Development at the University of Western Ontario in Canada. We will then hear from John Cartwright, who is a senior economist at the African Center for Cities at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And then we will hear from Martha Chen, who is a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and an affiliate professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Design and the international coordinator of the Global Research Policy Action Network, Women in Informal Employment, Global, Globalizing and Organizing. We are also pleased to be by David Satherwaite, who is one of the co-authors on the paper and a senior fellow at the Inter International Institute for the Environmental Development. Um, David will be available during the Q&A session. Um, before I start, that we will uh, want to note that we will have a recording of the call available on our website, and the full paper will be available starting on September 7th at 12.01 Eastern Time. So without further ado, let me turn over to Michael Westfall, Senior Associate here at WRI and the lead author of the paper. Michael. Thank you very much, Michael, and thank you for everyone joining this call. So in our paper, we identify a main urban energy access challenge, which, which is that the urban underserved connected to the conventional electrical grid and access clean, modern cooking fuels. So there are three associated costs uh, with this 
with this access challenge. One, there's the cost to the individual. Um, burning fuels like wood and charcoal blackens the air, blackens the lungs, um, and, and hurts anyone exposed to it. About 550,000 premature deaths in 2010 were due to indoor air pollution from cooking fuels. There's a cost to the economy. Uh, cities are not as productive as they could be because the underserved are not as productive as they could be. And then lastly, there's a cost to the environment. Dirty cooking fuel uh, produces soot that pollutes the whole city, not just the household. And related to this, cities in the developing world, uh, we project by 2050 will be responsible for more than half of all urban greenhouse gas emissions. If we can't bend the curve on emissions in these countries, we, we likely cannot meet our global emission targets. So what is new about our paper is that we show that addressing the, this challenge can not only help the underserved, but improve the overall economy and environment of the whole city. We highlight three solutions that cities in the global south themselves can help to implement. First, the shift to cleaner cooking fuels, Two, installing more distributed renewable energy sources, um, such as solar panels. And three, introducing building energy efficiency measures, such as building energy efficiency codes and appliance standards. And uh, I, I can go into more specific examples in the Q&A, but that, that gives you the main highlights of our paper. Michael? Great. Thank you so much, Michael, for giving that overview. Um, now we'll hear from Ajay Mather. Ajay. Thanks, Michael. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with all of you and uh, at the release of this paper. Uh, as far as developing countries are concerned, energy use is amazingly low. And uh, as the paper also uh, brings out, the world only knows one paradigm for development, and that is using more energy. And if uh, people have to have better quality of life, their energy use will have to increase. But as uh, Michael just mentioned, uh, this is uh, 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 there are problems, and problems are that uh, of air pollution in cities. Uh, there is the larger issue of greenhouse gas emissions, and there's also the problem of dirty fuels being used. So there is solid fuels that are used in cooking, uh, which is, uh, as Michael said, uh, harmful both for individuals as well as for cities. But the other issue that also occurs is that when people are underserved in terms of electricity from the grid, they also tend to turn to diesel generators, and diesel generators are also pretty unclean, lead to large amounts of uh, air pollution. And consequently, uh, means that reduce uh, local air pollution, that reduce greenhouse gases, and help underserved households to move towards cleaner fuels are the basis of both healthier and more productive people and healthier and more productive cities. Uh, I'd like to end with the point that as we go ahead, there is a large number of interventions that have been tried out in different parts of the world. Some of these interventions have worked better than others. And clearly, the willingness and ability of people, particularly the underserved, to pay for these 
interventions is at the heart of what will work and therefore the political legal economic systems and the ability and willingness to pay together uh, determine what is acceptable how is it to be packaged and the rate at which it is picked up thanks i'll end here and uh, look forward to questions great <clears throat> next we'll hear from bipasha uh, baraha bipasha Hi, um, so this is Vipasha Barua joining in from the University of Western Ontario in Canada. I looked at the three concrete interventions proposed in the paper, and I looked at them from a gender equality perspective, because that's what I was asked to reflect on, how women are affected by energy access issues in the urban context. Um, the switch to clean cooking fuels is obviously a huge priority because, as we know, cooking with uh, solid fuels is responsible for something like 3% of the totals, total world's uh, disease burden, and women are disproportionately represented in those numbers. About 60% of adult deaths are actually um, women, and 44% of total deaths tend to be children. So obviously that's a huge priority. There's, I found in my research um, a very strong link between reliable energy access and livelihoods, since women are likely to work from home, more likely to work from home than men. I found a very strong positive correlation between energy access and income from home-based enterprises. Um, and finally, I think a focus on um, clean, clean fuels is really important because cooking fuels are still seen as something that women need, um, although the last I checked, everybody eats cooked food. Um, and women tend to rank a lot lower on the social hierarchy. So there is sort of a social hierarchy uh, of energy needs even within a family. They often, women's needs in that sense, don't get as much attention as other energy needs in the household. So in my research, I frequently found situations where kind of the living room would be in the 21st century. You know, you would have a cell phone, a TV, often even a computer, but the kitchen was always often a few centuries behind and people are still using the traditional mud stove. And that often happens because of the social hierarchy of energy needs. So I think putting a focus on clean um, cooking fuels is very, very important from a gender perspective, uh, equity perspective. I also really like the focus on distributed um, renewable energy, um, couple of brief points. One, I think it was very important that we talk about renewable energy uh, and sort of grid-based electricity as complementary rather than mutually exclusive. I definitely found this to be true in my research all over rural and urban areas in India, that people practice what is called fuel stacking in the paper, i.e. that they use a variety of energy um, sources. So I think it's important to focus on that complementarity as this paper does and sort of not make the perfect the enemy of the good. Um, I also think that standalone renewable energy, so in the form of whether it's you know um, the solar cookers and solar lanterns, are important because they help us get around land tenure issues in urban areas in a way that grid extension and other grid interventions often can't. So I thought that was really, really important. And finally, even with the um, focus on energy efficiency, I think there's tremendous potential also for employment generation in all of these three interventions. Um, so shifting to clean fuels, distributed renewable energy, and energy efficiency, I think there's tremendous potential to create um, you know, employment for people in doing all of these things, in things like you know, um, at various levels of the energy supply chain for selling, promoting um, uh, clean technologies, um, 
the sort of uh, improved cook stoves, learning how to do energy audits, teaching people in small businesses about energy efficiency. And because low-income people spend way more money on energy, the savings are even more significant for them. So I think that that's something that we could in the future also look at, is look at improving um, the employment potential from all of these interventions, and that would definitely fit right in with that nexus between energy, uh, sort of, sorry, environment, um, economy, and equity. Um, thank you very much. I think I'll stop right there. Great. Thank you so much, Papasha, uh, for sharing your insights. Um, we'll now hear from Anton Cartwright. Anton. Thank you, and greetings from Cape Town. Um, <clears throat> so I wanted to begin by just reiterating how important this is, um, particularly in the African continent. I think it's sometimes difficult um, for people who haven't experienced um, energy poverty or rolling outages to imagine quite how difficult life is um, for the 60% of the African population or the 40% of the African urban population that doesn't have access to uh, grid-supplied electricity. Um, it's, a, it's a humanitarian crisis, um, and that's not only because uh, the lack of, uh, of electricity uh, limits their economic opportunities and their livelihood, livelihood opportunities. It's also because uh, a regular and uh, reliable supply of, of electricity is crucial um, for other development uh, components such as sanitation, water supply, um, and, and, and business development as well. And as has already been said, um, the absence of reliable electricity uh, of course, exposes people to, to much dirtier fuels and to, to, to other problems uh, which are underdocumented under in African cities, uh, fires, indoor air pollution, um, and, and toxic byproducts of other fuels, uh, but which are, which are very prevalent. So I think the report is, is fantastic in, in identifying opportunities, uh, but if one is to shift from a diagnosis towards, towards remedies, I think it needs to be explicit. Um, that this is not just a technocratic or a technical challenge. Um, energy is perhaps the quintessential public good, maybe alongside uh, defense forces and armies. Um, and, and as such, uh, the supply of energy, certainly in Africa, is, is deeply political and deeply enmeshed with, with political systems. Um, and so any kind of attempt to address the current energy deficit uh, has to address uh, political considerations as well. And of course, cities on the African continent are also political, and the relationship between national government, which we often generate electricity, and uh, local government or urban governments, uh, which consume the, the bulk of electricity on the African continent, is fundamental to this problem. And if, if you understand that, um, then you understand that the role of state-owned energy utilities is crucial. And um, whilst these uh, distributed technologies and energy efficiency and, and, and cooking fuels are very, uh, cooking, sto cooking stoves are very important, and some of this stuff is happening already in the in the vacuum left behind by by state-supplied electricity, grid-supplied electricity, and, and those efforts need to be encouraged. Uh, I think it's, as has already been mentioned, it's critical that we simultaneously address the efficiency uh, and the reach of energy utilities on, on the continent, because um, certainly they, they could become much more efficient. Currently, Africans pay uh, three times the price of uh, Southeast Asian for their grid-supplied electricity, 
uh, roughly twice the price of Latin Americans, and the electricity which they do receive is, is much less reliable. Um, ro rolling outages and diesel backup generators are, are a feature of electricity in, in pretty much all of Africa's cities. So it's a political challenge, and that political challenge um, is crucial if Africa is going to engage some mode of industrialization or green industrialization, or even if it's going to look to uh, develop its own manufacturing sector, which many people argue is very important. Um, whilst the technologies uh, promoted in the paper are crucial for livelihood and for household energy security, it's difficult to imagine how they can be scaled um, to support a manufacturing sector, and, and that's where the role of, of state-owned energy uh, energy utilities is, will come in, and the political challenges confronting those utilities will need to be confronted alongside all the very good things which, which the paper says. Thanks. Great. Thank you uh, for sharing your uh, insights, Anton, and especially from uh, Cape Town. So uh, we appreciate your joining. Um, and our next and final speaker will be um, Martha Chen. Martha? Thank you, Michael, and thanks for the opportunity. The perspective I'll bring is of the working poor in cities around the world, and uh, the working poor are concentrated in what's called the informal economy. Um, half of workers in Latin America, two-thirds of workers in East and Southeast Asia, three-quarters of workers in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. And most of them are working in either public space or private homes in informal settlements. And so the access to energy, particularly to electricity, is absolutely critical for their productivity. And yet they are, as we've heard, uh, either off the grid, uh, especially if they're working in public space, um, or they are on the grid, but the supply is very irregular and the cost is often prohibitive. And we find that the productivity of these workers is greatly undermined uh, by not having regular supply of electricity at an affordable cost. And let me just uh, illustrate with the case of home-based workers whom uh, Bipasha Barua, thank you, Bipasha, raised. Um, One-third, 30% actually of, work, of women workers in both Pakistan and India are home-based. One half of manufacturing units in India are home-based. And yet the supply of electricity to make those activities productive is um, irregular, if not at all, and often very costly. Um, the crisis of energy in Pakistan has taken a particular toll on home-based workers in that country. Um, it was the energy crisis and decentralization to cities where the cities were trying to raise revenue by increasing the cost of electricity. And you had the economic crisis. And we had a situation in which in Lahore, Pakistan, two women home-based workers committed suicide during that uh, global recession because they simply could not meet work orders. And if you can't meet the work orders, then you don't get the next work order. And we also learned of home-based workers in Lahore trying to meet work orders by working at night, holding, if you will, their cell phone in their mouth and working by the light of the cell phone to um, meet the work order. 
And what they told us, because we've done studies on this in 10 cities, but in Lahore particularly, they were saying the factories and the small workshops, manufacturing workshops, are the ones that have the diesel generators, but in their homes, they don't have these. And they were working by candlelight, by lantern light, by whatever they could to be able to meet the work orders. And they often have to work at night because they have a double day of um, household chores. So it's really a question of investing in productivity and getting um, these kinds of workers uh, regular supply. And I will agree with Anton that it's highly political because the cities don't want to extend electricity to informal settlements where the home-based workers are. And they don't want to recognize the informal activities of street vendors and other groups on public space in the cities. So it's a, a space issue which compounds the access to electricity issue. And so the topic is very timely and very important, both for welfare but also for productivity. Thank you. Great. Thank you, uh, Martha, and thank you to all of our speakers for laying out um, so clearly uh, and vividly and in human terms uh, a lot of uh, these issues that we're discussing this morning around energy in cities. So um, let's now turn to the reporters and see if we have some questions. Operator? Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question, please press star followed by number one. Please unmute your phone and record your name clearly when prompted. Your name is required to introduce your question. To withdraw your request, please press star followed by number two. One moment, please, for the first question. Great, thanks. And as we're waiting for the first question, just a reminder that the uh, paper is under embargo until 1201 uh, Eastern Time, September 7th, just after midnight tonight, Eastern Time. And um, also, if you want to get in touch with any of the speakers on today's call, um, you can contact uh, my colleague, Craig Brownstein. Um, his information should be in your email if you've joined the call today. So, uh, operator, should we go to our first question, please? Our first question comes from Jack. Your line is now open. Great. And if you could just let us know where you're calling from, that would be helpful. Thank you, Jack. I just had a question in relation to blended finance, uh, social impact, and green bonds as uh, solutions uh, to these issues, and, uh, and particularly the scaling of solar uh, PV. Um, what specifically should be done to tackle the willingness to buy issues that the report uh, links to use of these financial instruments? Great. And Jack, sorry, I missed where you were calling from. Which outlet was that? This is Development Finance Magazine. Great. Thank you so much. So your question is about solutions and green bonds and scaling up solar. And um, would one of our speakers like to take the first pass at that? Michael, do you want to jump in a little bit? And yeah, I mean, maybe Anton will have something uh, to say from, a, from an African perspective. Um, certainly, uh, in this paper, we, we do think that we, we certainly need uh, a lot of innovative finance. Uh, we certainly think there's a role for social impact bonds, results-based finance, particularly around addressing the, you know, the externalities of, of the energy issues, the air pollution costs. 
Um, in terms of the willingness to pay, I think one of the things that that makes make makes us very sanguine about about solar panels is you see the proliferation of consumer finance models. So PAYGO is really taking off in Africa, particularly in the rural space. In one one year, you have a doubling of households that are using pay-as-you-go finance. Um, so as, as you have a exponential decrease in the cost of solar panels, and then you have this proliferation of new consumer finance models. So we think that solar panels will become increasingly more affordable, um, as is the case in, in the rural space. Um, I don't know if Anton has anything you know, to add on, from an African perspective about blended finance, the role of DFIs, um, in, in addressing urban energy access. Let me try. That would be good to hear. Let me try. So I, I think, you know, the, the lack of finance for uh, public sector energy is critical on the African continent. How to overcome that shortfall is really tricky because uh, Africa, like parts of Asia, is urbanizing at levels of um, household income w way below uh, Latin America, for example. So r roughly 40% urban at $1,000 per capita per year. What that means is that you can't take your standard uh, energy supply technology, you know, call it a gas-fired power station or even a, a solar plant or a coal-fired power station or a hydro plant. You can't go to the World Bank, borrow the money, build a kit, charge the users, and service your debt. Um, and so if this is going to be addressed, there's an acute need um, for financial sector innovation, but that addresses not just what one hears a lot about, which is the bankability of cities or the bankability of end customers, but also uh, reforms the way in which finance is supplied. And interestingly, and from this report, I think there's an awful lot that can be learned um, by energy utilities and by energy startups from what is happening anyway, and particularly the distributed energy off-grid pay-as-you-go model. And you know, essentially, what one has to learn from that is that there are financial solutions that can be tailored if the particular needs of end users is understood and if their the affordability of those end users is understood and the products and service delivery package is designed backwards from that need and from that affordability. And so if one's going to innovate both the technology, the energy technology and the financial package and those things need to happen simultaneously if this is going to be addressed, I think there are some important lessons uh, that can be learned um, from 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 what's happening already. Uh, without that, I, I don't. I'm skeptical about the ability of you know the green finance, the green bonds, the blended finance. Some of that stuff is just repackaging of of old debt instruments. And unless the structural impediments to to accessing that capital, to understanding the risks of uh, not providing that capital to the poorest. Uh, communities in the world, unless those risks are understood and factored into the financial analysis, I think I think the capital will continue to flow to familiar corners and will continue to ignore places of critical need when it comes to energy. Thanks. Um, may I? Um, if I can add in, this is Ajay speaking. Hello. Uh, yeah. Yep, Ajay, why don't you go ahead, and then uh, I, I, I think that might be Martha trying to come in too. So. Oh, Vipasha. Uh, it's Vipasha. Oh, sorry, Vipasha. Sorry. Okay, let's go to Ajay first and then Vipasha. 
One of the things that uh, Indian financial institutions have found when they try to raise money through green bonds is that the cost of capital doesn't change. And that is disturbing because if green bonds, when you raise them for Indian markets, are at the same price as other money, then there is really no benefit if you provide them on to uh, underserved uh, customers where the key challenge is the total cost. Uh, the issue of the cost of capital is central to enhancing particularly renewables, and uh, you had asked about its impact on solar energy, because in renewables, the entire capital cost, both the capital cost and the there's no operating cost, it's all up there up front. And if the cost of capital is high, that means that this may end up costing the user far more than using fossil fuel-based system where half the cost is an operating cost and therefore is not loaded upfront on the cost of capital. Uh, this is, you know, innovative means to address the cost of capital are therefore important. Great. Uh, thank you, Ajay and Babasha. I was actually about to make one of the points that Ajay made, but one more thing. I found that a lot of the tools, more broadly speaking, that are used, being used to enable uh, sort of a transition to low-carbon economies are still quite untested. I mean, it's when you go looking for empirical evidence on what have we been able to accomplish in terms of social impact, it's very difficult to find convincing empirical evidence. Some tools, though, that doesn't mean that we're dismissing them outright. I found, for example, that uh, you know, when India legislated corporate social responsibility a few years ago, I think it was 2012 or 2013, and I believe it's the first country to do so, uh, where, country, uh, you know, companies now have to spend 2% of their uh, net profits on sort of social responsibility activities. Some of the funds have been used quite well, including, I think, in Terry's um, Lighting a Billion Lives project, and I should send you that paper, uh, some work I did with Terry, actually, Ajay. Uh, but I find that it, it's too early to call. I think we may end up with a lot of greenwashing and a lot of window dressing, but it's also possible that there will be some interesting social kind of impact. It's just that it's too early to call from my perspective as a researcher. So we have to keep sort of um, studying these initiatives more closely over the next decade or so. Great. <clears throat> thank you for those comments and thank you for the question. Uh, Operator, shall we go to the next question, please? Our next question comes from Doug. Your line is now open. Yes, this is uh, Doug Bernard with Voice of America. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you uh, for all your time today. Um, I have two questions, actually, and they're, they're general in nature. Um, my first question is, what is it that <clears throat> leads you to conclude that cities are maybe better positioned to address these issues and maybe, you know, and actually make some advancement than either national, uh, regional, or international organizations or political structures. And my second question is just given the, the cities that you're talking about in the, in the global south and the persistent lack of resources, um, how is it, do you think, or how is it that you would propose um, creating the will for the extra lift that would be required to, you know, kind of get over the, the, the big hill toward this, this better place? The ideas are you know, eminently sensible, but it strikes me that political will might be difficult to find. Great. <clears throat> Two good questions. Um, and we have David Satterwhite on the phone. 
um, as well. He's a senior fellow at the International Institute for Environment and Development, and he's a co-author on the paper. And I want to see, David, if you wanted to uh, uh, chime in on either of those questions. Uh, no, I'd be delighted to, um, to kick off a, um, a discussion of these. In one way, it is a better position than national governments because there's all sorts of economies of scale and agglomeration in delivering energy services. The city governments, if elected, are also more accountable and more directly responsible, including re responsible to the inadequately served and underserved. And we, we, we can think that lack of finance is one of the critical constraints, and it is, but as big a constraint is local government's relationship with informal settlement. A very large part of the population using dirty fuels, um, lacking reliable electricity, live in informal or illegal settlements. Governments are often very reluctant to extend to them energy services and other services, or may by law be prohibited from doing so. What, what I enjoy um, um, visiting is where you've had local governments working with organizations formed by the inhabitants of informal settlements to come up with, 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 with joint solutions. Now, at present, most of those joint solutions are land tenure, water, sanitation, and health care, but they can certainly be extended to improving energy services too. <coughs> Great. Uh, thank you for those comments, <coughs> David. Uh, would uh, others like to chime in on uh, either of these questions? Um, hi, this is Marty. I'd I guess I'll have two comments. One is to um, echo what David said and to um, add that we have the informal settlements and we also have the informal livelihoods. And the informal livelihoods take place, some of them, in the informal settlements and uh, are underserved <laughs> for services, as he mentioned. But a lot of them also take place in public space. And it's really the city government that regulates who can do what in public space. So the role of the city um, is directly um, has direct impact on these livelihoods. And in terms of the political will, I think if we can put more emphasis on uh, the productivity gains of uh, extending the electrical grid uh, and other sources of energy to these uh, informal livelihoods, which um, right now, uh, despite all the odds uh, that undermine their productivity, are generating anywhere from 40 to 60 percent of the GDP in the cities. Um, and if you could um, reduce the negatives by extending uh, energy and other services to them, uh, the productivity gains would be huge. So that's how I would try to uh, create the will. Um, Ajay, can I join in? Yes, of course. Go ahead, Ajay. Um, well, first of all, Doug, uh, which level of government is best suited depends on the legal, economic, political organization in the country. Uh, in India, for example, the electricity companies are organized at a state level and not the municipal or city level. Uh, the suppliers of cooking gas are at the national level. However, infrastructure design is at the 
urban municipal level. So if all of these three uh, don't work in uh, cohesion, in harmony, uh, it will be difficult or you would achieve only part of the answer. Now, that's the reason why it's very specific. It's not that uh, urban governments uh, are the key to all solutions. It will depend on the kind of realities that exist. Uh, your second question had to do with political will. Um, I look at political will as shorthand for the fact that there is no political vested interests that have gathered around uh, the need to provide clean energy to underserved people. The day that vested interest is created, the political will will be created as well. And maybe that's what many of us need to focus on. Great. Doug, perhaps, I can, perhaps I can come in there? Yes, sure. Please go ahead, Anton. Um, so, Anton from Cape Town again. Um, and you know, those are both very important questions, and, and, and there are no easy answers to them. But, but having and made the case for it being political, and I think it is political across the, the multiple spheres of government which are involved in energy supply, I do think that at least part of the solution is, is already emerging in the form of technological innovation. And so, whereas you know, the state had to supply uh, electricity to households in the past because it was such a quintessential public good, um, you know, the falling price of uh, modular, small-scale photovoltaics, for example, is meaning that, that mines, companies, and in some cases even households, can actually um, find their own solutions. And, and this is happening. I mean, across East Africa, is probably the best example on, on, on the African continent. You know, there's, a, there's an off-grid micro-solar revolution. That's not complete because, as I said earlier, it doesn't necessarily enable manufacturing or industrialization, which is important, but it is significant into, at the household scale. And so, you know, perhaps in an optimistic sense as to how you get over the hump, to use your phraseology, um, one needs to look at what's happening already. And as I sometimes say to students here, I think in 30 years' time we might look back on relying on the state um, with all its inefficiencies and incumbences for for electricity, uh, a little bit like the um, like sort of the serfs of in the medieval manner relied on the Lord for food. You know, it was a crazy system; it was never going to be sustainable. And in the end, people found found their own way because they had to, because it was imperative that they had to. And you know, people are finding solutions to the energy crises. Um, and so it's, it's up to the state as to you know whether they criminalise those, uh, how those. Uh, emergent initiatives are uh, woven into existing state and utilities and, and their electricity circulation, and there's undoubtedly conflict that lies ahead in, in finding the integrated solution. But um, technology and, the, and the, the rapidly falling price of photovoltaics and other and cookstoves and other and energy efficiency storage technologies um, is, is definitely helping. So it's, it's, it might not be as critical as, as you imagine, and, and we need to harness those innovations. Thanks. Michael, may Great. I say one more thing about political will? Sure. Go, go right ahead. First we'll and foremost, it. this is Marty Chen again. Um, what I know from working with um, organizations of informal workers in multiple cities is um, pol political will is very elusive because governments change, officials change. And who doesn't change are the people who live in the informal settlements and the working poor and their informal livelihoods. So um, like the experience that um, David referred to where you have organizations of 
informal settlement dwellers. There are organizations of informal workers in cities, and it's really critical that their voice be heard in the process because they are the ones who are going to try to keep uh, successive administrations uh, accountable for their energy and other needs. So organization and voice is perhaps the only way to ensure political will because they're the ones who are going to keep the pressure on the successive administration. Great. Uh, thank you so much. Um, operator, do you want to uh, see if there are any further questions? Speakers, <clears throat> we don't have any questions on queue. Please proceed. Great. Okay. Um, well, with that, I think we're uh, coming about to the end of this call. Again, thank you to all the speakers, and I wanted to invite uh, Michael uh, Westfall to as the lead author, having spent a lot of time uh, wrestling with these issues along with uh, the other speakers on this call. But I thought, Michael, if you want to share kind of a closing thought here uh, as we uh, get ready to release the paper. So, sure. Thank, thank you, Michael, and thank you, uh, panelists and, and journalists who joined the call. I guess I just want to emphasize that that's this access to energy is really not a, just a rural problem, it's an urban problem, and that we will not meet our climate commitments and our sustainable development goals unless we address this urban energy challenge. And unless everyone in the city has access to dependable energy services, the city will not thrive and prosper as well as it, as it could. So with that... Thank you very much. Great. Thank you again. Um, thank you for joining the call. Thank you to all of our uh, speakers today from um, many parts of the world. It's great to have you all and to hear your views. Um, again, the recording of this call will be available and the paper and associated materials will be on our website, wrf.org, uh, this evening, uh, tonight after 12.01 Easter time. Again, thank you all and have a pleasant day, a pleasant evening. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. That concludes the conference. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect. <laughs>